What's up, friends in the room? What's up, everybody tuning in from Porch Indy, Porch Tulsa, Porch North Houston, Porch Cincy, Porch Boise, Porch Austin, all the different Porch Live locations. We're continuing this series on God, looking at standing firm in a fallen world, looking at lessons from the life and really the book of Daniel. We're going to continue that tonight. Let me bring you into a little bit of my world and what probably will be a part of your world in who knows how long amount of time in those days ahead of marriage and kids. And whenever you have kids, there's like this unspoken rule that happens in the middle of the night where it's whichever spouse hears the child screaming is responsible to get up and go get the child, which leads to all kinds of like, you know, you hear them, but you're like, man, surely they're going to hear them faster than I'm going to hear them. And you're almost pretending that you can't, you know, totally hear because kids will, especially my kids, will just yell and they'll want to wake up or they'll have some reason why they need to get out of bed. And dad, can I get more water? Or dad, can I change my socks? Dad, can I change my socks again? My, my covers aren't flat. And just this endless list of trying to negotiate and get them to go to sleep. Now, there's one season where, as the husband, and men, this is headed in your future, you are primarily or really solely on, you know, the duty of getting the kids when they wake up in the middle of the night, and that is during the newborn phase, because you can't contribute anything to the feeding of a new baby, so you are solely responsible for the children whenever they wake up in the middle of the night. Last night was one of those occasions in my world where at 2.30 in the morning, my son is screaming bloody murder, and I run in there expecting him to want a snack or water or something, and he is throwing up in his bed. I know, I know, I feel bad now. And this creates a mixed response of, oh no, buddy, and also, oh no, oh. And so I begin to change his sheets and change his pillow and change his shirt and get him some water and try to get him to go back to sleep. And he clearly had some sort of stomach bug or ate something, and so, Finally, he goes back to sleep. I go back to bed. Until two hours later, the exact same thing happens again, and I run in there, and he's clearly sick again. So we go through the whole nine yards again of changing the sheets, changing his clothes, changing his pillow. Now, what does it have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Well, tonight, we're going to talk about something that in a very similar way, where there was something internally that we could not see. He went to bed fine. He was totally okay the night before. And yet that something on the inside, a virus, a stomach bug, something, was impacting his behavior on the outside and causing harm and discomfort to him and his younger sister who's sleeping right below him in the bunk bed. And that same internal, I know, poor her. I'm like, please stop the screaming. That same idea of something internal that you can't always see but when it's not dealt with, is going to impact what happens on the outside, is at the heart of what the discussion we're going to look at tonight from Daniel chapter 4 is. Involving a sickness, if you will, not of a virus or a stomach bug, but a sickness the Bible describes that has infected every human heart on the inside of pride. Now, pride is a hard thing to discuss and what it looks like, because a lot of us came to the room and you're like, oh, we're talking about pride, because it's so ambiguous. Like, if I was right now, let's do this. Show of hands, who struggles with pride in the room? Raise your hand. Okay, everybody who didn't raise their hand, you struggle with pride, okay? <laughs> it can be one of those things that is hard to define and thus hard to combat, and yet, throughout the Bible, if you're going to categorize one sin that God says is the most deadly of them all, it would be pride. In the book of Obadiah, he talks about how I hate pride throughout the scriptures. It's just over and over. The Proverbs say six things that I hate, and one is a proud heart. And I think one of the reasons that is is because pride has so many different manifestations, but it is an enemy of relationships. Nothing will divide a wedge in your family relationships, friendships, dating relationships like pride. Pride is ultimately the thing that will send people to an eternity away from God or to hell. And pride can look like a, a number of different things. It's the thing on the inside that makes you say, man, I'm not apologizing to them. I'm responsible for like 5% of this pride. It's the thing on the inside that makes you go, man, I don't wanna be honest right now. That's just gonna be uncomfortable. I don't wanna share that with my group. Pride. 
I don't want to ask for help. Or maybe it's the thing that makes you say, man, I'm just afraid to say anything because what are they going to think about me? It's pride. And it's got a lot of different faces. And tonight we're going to look at a character in the Bible that has one of the more fascinating, crazy stories, I think, in all of the Bible, in all of the scriptures. And it's a story of King Nebuchadnezzar and this man, and I'll tell you the summary of the story before we dive into it here in a second. But it's a man who we've been talking about for the past few weeks. And if you weren't here, we're looking at the book of Daniel. What's the book of Daniel? It's an Old Testament book that was written by Daniel 600 years before Jesus. So 600 BC. And Daniel, in chapter one, we're told, was captured from the city of Jerusalem and dragged by the Babylonian army and King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylonian Empire was the only superpower in the world at that time. They had conquered the known world. And Nebuchadnezzar shows up to Jerusalem where Daniel and some of his friends live. He conquers them, takes them back, says, you're going to be a slave in my palace. And Daniel's taken 500 miles from home in the city of Babylon, which is today modern-day Iraq, about 50 miles south of Baghdad. And King Nebuchadnezzar has established this empire bigger than anything the world had ever seen. I think, I think we have a map of the Babylonian Empire where he had just conquered, as far as they knew, the known world at that time. And he erects this palace and this fortress of a city that was one of the ancient marvels of the ancient world. And Daniel's now a slave and a captive. And in chapter one, the first week, we talked about how Daniel, through his faithfulness, he really rises and he becomes an advisor to the king. He just stands out for his faith. And then in chapter two, the king, we're told, has this bad dream and he wakes up and he can't find anybody that can tell him the dream and tell him what it means. And Daniel goes to him and he says, God has given me the answer to the dream. He tells him all of human history. And then last week, King Nebuchadnezzar, because he was a guy who didn't have a relationship with God, he's a pagan, he worshiped, a non, he worshiped an idol. And he also worshiped himself and wanted others to worship himself. And so last week we looked at a famous story called, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were three of Daniel's friends. And King Nebuchadnezzar erects this giant statue, 90 feet tall, solid gold, of himself, and says, anybody who doesn't bow down to it will be thrown into a furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, last week, we talked through what it looks like to stand firm, even when it costs you. And so they say, King, we're not gonna bow down to you. We don't care what you do to us. Has them thrown in the furnace. And inside of the furnace, they're fireproof. They won't burn. And the king says, okay, get them back out here. New rule. All right, all of us are gonna worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because clearly he's more impressive than the gold statue that's out there. And the story we're gonna look at tonight is about 25 years later, a couple decades have gone by. And King Nebuchadnezzar has an on-again, off-again relationship with God. He has these moments, like we saw last week, where he says, everybody should worship that person. And then, like you would expect of a king who's the most powerful person in the world, he has a palace beyond anything we have anything like in our society today, has wealth beyond measure, has people around him saying, you're basically a god. And he begins to think, look how amazing I am. And that pride is gonna lead, as we're gonna see in this crazy story, from him being a king to acting like a cow to acting like a king again. And if you think I'm joking or being figurative, I am not, as you're gonna see. It's one of the more wild, fascinating stories. But God preserved it so that people would have an ability to combat pride and experience a freedom from it and a freedom from all of the side effects. So we're gonna look at the symptoms of pride, the side effects that bring about in our life, and then the solution over and over the scripture hammers inside of this really fascinating story. So we're gonna walk through a lot of scripture, and I'm gonna try to summarize portions of it so that we can move through it, just because there's so much. But this starts in Daniel chapter four, verse one. It says this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, the king is speaking, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. This may be the understatement of the city. Historians say Babylon had more gold than dust. He had more wealth than we even have a category for. In other words, he's walking around, he's wearing off-white, he's wearing Gucci and Louis. He's got, you know, camel chariots, solid gold with diamond rims on the outside. He has a level of luxury beyond what any of us will ever experience. He said, I'm sitting there, I'm in my palace. And then verse 2, or verse 5, but one night I had a dream and it frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I laid in my bed. So he has this dream and he can't shake it and he calls in 
uh, in the verses following, the usual suspects of all the wise men and all the astrologers and all these people and says, tell me the dream. None of them can tell him the meaning of the dream. And finally, he calls in Daniel. And he begins to describe, and he says, Daniel, here was the dream that I had. And he says, there was this huge tree, and it filled the sky and the heavens. And animals came from all over the earth, and they fed, and they found food, and they found shade underneath this tree. And then I'm seeing, and I'm watching this giant tree, and a voice from the heavens says, cut it down, cut it down, and let a stump remain, and let him be driven out into the wilderness to eat like a wild animal, to eat grass like an animal, to be drenched with the dew of heaven until, and then these angels start speaking in the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar's describing this for Daniel. He's like, I, I don't know what it means. Here's the dream. There's this tree, this voice, cut it down. It's just a stump. And it's going to be driven out into the wilderness to eat. And these angels begin to sing. And in verse 17, it says, the angels are saying, until so that everyone may know the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even the lowliest of people. So the king is describing this to Daniel, and we're told in the text that Daniel is listening to the king's dream, and his face goes white. He's terrified for the king. And he says, if only this dream was for your enemies and not for you. And the king can tell he's terrified, and the king's like, hey, hey dude, it's all right, man. Just tell me what it means. It's okay. Just tell me what the dream means. And Daniel, it says this. Verse 22, that tree, your majesty, is you, for you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to the heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Verse 24, this is what the dream means. Your majesty and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society and you will live in fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow, and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. And King Nebuchadnezzar's gotta be sitting there thinking, you mean like metaphorically speaking, right? Like bad things are gonna happen? And Daniel says, no, I mean literally speaking. And the king probably thought, there's no way, I'm not going to eat grass like an animal, this is just bizarre. And then we're told, Seven periods of time, Daniel says, or seven years, will pass by while you live like this until you learn, here's the phrase again, the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses. But, verse 26, the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. And this is what this means. This means you will receive your kingdom back when you have learned that heaven rules. That phrase appears only one time in the Bible. And he says, you're gonna be driven away until you learn heaven ultimately rules. You may be king of this empire, but God is king over every empire and over every place, that he rules over every ruler. King Nebuchadnezzar, please, verse 27, Daniel begins to say, accept my advice. Stop sinning or repent. Do what is right. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor. You're living in luxury. You're so focused on yourself. Focus on the needs of the people in your kingdom. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. But the king doesn't listen. And he goes away and he thinks, there's no way, I'm not gonna, it's just so random. I'm gonna be driven away and live outside. I'm gonna go from the palace to the pasture. That can't be what it means. And 12 months go by and we're told this. 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he looked at the great city of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders or one of the wonders of the world at that time that he had constructed. And he's looking out at all the temples and the palaces, these massive hundreds of feet high walls that he's built, the hanging gardens of Babylon that he built for his wife, story for another time, all these amazing things that he's created. 
and he's looking down at them from the roof of his palace, and he says this. Look at this great city. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Now, this is the time, if this was a movie, when the audience would go, no! Because as we're going to discover, when the words were still on his mouth, the dream came true. But before we go into that, I just want to talk through some of the symptoms of pride. Because one of the dangers of pride is it can be really easy to spot in other people, but difficult to see in our own life. And he gives us one of the symptoms of pride, but throughout the Bible, we're introduced to several of the different ways pride shows itself up in our life and in your life. The first symptom that we see of him modeled is that of arrogance. Probably the most commonly seen, expressed version that when we think of pride, we think of. But the king says, man, in all, look at, look at everything that I've created here for myself. He gives no credit to God, no credit to anybody else. He sees, I have accomplished this. This is equivalent to the person saying, look at my bank account and what I have accomplished. Look at the number of followers I have on Instagram. Look how physically attractive I am or fit I am. Look at all the degrees that I have accomplished and accumulated for myself. And he doesn't give credit to the source of all of those things in his life, just like all of the things in your life of success or accomplishment or good, which is God. In other words, in America, we have this expression of like, you know, a self-made person, I pull myself up from my bootstraps. The Bible says that every good thing that you have and I have inside of my life is a gift from God. It's all been received, and which makes sense when you think about it, because you think about so many of the accomplishments that so many of us have inside of our life have so much to do with decisions or with things that we have no part in deciding. Like you didn't grow up in the home, or you didn't choose to grow up in the home and the city or have the education or the opportunities or drive the car that you had. You didn't decide to be a part of the family or be raised in the community that you have. And you may be thinking, no, dude, I'm, I'm self-made. Like, I, my parents didn't do anything, and I have worked hard, and I have made it. Through all of that energy and hard work, who gave you the energy to do that hard work? Who gave you the mind to think and be able to complete tasks at your business to succeed? And we often do or think, like Nebuchadnezzar thinks, like, man, I am responsible for what I have created through all my hard work. And the first manifestation we see or the symptom of pride is this arrogance that assumes you are responsible for your success and giving no credit to ultimately the source of good, which is God. And he models that inside of this chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul reiterates this idea where he says to the Corinthian church in verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive as a gift? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? That Nebuchadnezzar, like oftentimes we can, was taking credit for something that was given to him by God. You remember in high school where you would have to write these papers and they would make you go through and do citations and the paper would take you like six hours to write and then the citations would take like 47 hours to write and you're going through MLA format and you're like, man, how does this even work and trying to figure all that stuff out. One of the weird things about writing a book was that it was like MLA citations on steroids where every different, cite, or every different statistic or quote or different things when I was going through the process of writing it, the publisher would come back and say, hey, is this original material? Have you sourced this? We need the source because you, can't, you can plagiarize in high school and maybe get away with it or get you know, a C from Miss Ingram, but if you plagiarize on a book and don't give enough credit, you can legally be held responsible and be sued, and they can be sued. And so it was like on steroids where they were extra about, hey, you have to make sure if there's any sources that don't come from you, you give credit to them. And what pride makes us do is be basically cosmic plagiarizers of God. I take credit for what ultimately is his, what ultimately he is given. And everything, and I know some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, man, but I really, I've worked really hard and made good decisions. 
even the ability to make those decisions and to have strength to get up and the breath in your lungs today is all a gift from God. So the first thing we see pride as a symptom of is this arrogance. Another way we see it expressing itself is entitlement. The pride says, I deserve good things. I cannot believe Becky, down in accounting, got a raise, and today I found out that my company or my boss, my supervisor, I'm not getting anything this year. I am entitled to more, that there's an entitlement versus a gratitude that comes with a humility. Man, I'm just, I am grateful for all that God has given me, that I have an entitlement. I mean, we see this, and it's so, it's like the little kid who, when they open a present, maybe you got nieces and nephews, and you see them open presents, and they open a Christmas present, and they're like, oh, mom, not again. And you see it, and you're like, man, you are so spoiled. And yet, there's parts of all of our hearts that probably haven't grown out of that. And another way it shows itself is just an entitlement. Another way we show it, see it showing up is through, and this is especially relevant to Christians, pride, a symptom is being judgmental. That I look down on people thinking that I'm better with them because I don't struggle with the substances that they struggle with, substance abuse. I don't struggle with same-sex attraction. I cannot believe that your pornography is something you're addicted to. I cannot believe that you would make that decision. And tragically, Christians come off in a way that makes people think, they think we're better than them. Or they think you think you're better than them. Because I know a certain number of Bible verses, man, I just, I know God and I'm a better Christian than you are. And it can make you come across judgmental to people around you. Another way it can make you come across judgmental is assuming that you know someone's heart or motives when they do something. Let me say that again. Assuming I know your heart and motives behind why you did something. It's arrogant and it's pride. You didn't come and show up to my party because you don't ever want to be a part. You don't like me and you've never liked me. When it turns out, they had some family tragedy that took them away from doing it, but you just assume their motives. And you know what assuming does to all of us? And that's arrogance and it's pride that I cannot discern your heart and you cannot discern mine. In other words, it's inside of the room. There may be people who, you know, you got 200,000 followers on TikTok or whatever on Instagram and you look at yourself and you're like, look at this, look how amazing I am, this is awesome. That's pride, we could all see that. But the person who looks at that person and says, I cannot believe they have that many, they clearly are all about themselves if they have that many followers. That's also pride. It can show itself in a lot of different ways and one of the ways it shows is by I attach motive to your actions, your behaviors, and I assume that I know your heart which only God knows. Another way we see pride showing up is insecurity. And this is probably the one that most people don't think about. In other words, we think of the guy who's too cool for school, walks with a swagger, look at me, I'm the man. But we don't think about insecurity being another expression of pride. Pride ultimately is an obsession, a focus on self, a focus to protect a certain image, and oftentimes insecurity is driven by, man, I'm not gonna say anything in this meeting because I'm afraid of what they're gonna think. Which means I'm not concerned about whatever's best or the decision having another alternative perspective on it. I'm just concerned about what other people think about me. That's pride. That it can look in a lot of different ways over, man, I don't even wanna be around her because she just started dating him and that just reminds me of the fact that I'm single and it's an insecurity, and it's pride. There's a lot of different faces and symptoms as it relates to how pride shows itself. It looks defensive because of that insecurity that I can't be teachable or openly receiving feedback because of pride, which means I can't grow because of pride. And King Nebuchadnezzar, sitting on the rooftop, look at me, look how amazing I am, and this is what happens next after the symptoms, the side effects, while the words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven. 
O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. What was that like? That's a bad day. This is not a drill. You are no longer king. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the field with wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world, and he gives them to anyone he chooses. The same hour the judgment was fulfilled, Nebuchadnezzar went mad. He was driven from society. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was long like eagle's feathers, and his nails were like that of bird claws. I mean, just think about what just happened. Nebuchadnezzar, sitting on the roof, look how amazing I am, looking down, all this stuff that I created. Voice from heaven says, because of your arrogance, you will be driven out. And the next moment later, he's out, out of the palace, in the pasture, eating grass. I mean, think about that in our context. You find out tonight on the news, afterwards you check, turns out the president has gone crazy, he's out in front in the rose garden at the White House, and he is eating the roses. And seven years go by, and everyone's like, any new update on the president? And they're like, he's still eating the roses. And that's what just happened. And he's out there, and he's gone crazy. And he experiences a side effect of what pride leads to. It still leads to today. For him, it looked like insanity. There's actually uh, mental health or psychological classifications for the mental illness that he has where there's still examples of people that have time or periods of time in their life where they will go crazy and think that they're an animal today. But all that you see is a side effect, which is the second point, the side effects of pride. One of them is this insanity that he experiences. It's not necessarily the most common of the side effects that maybe you and I experience, at least certainly not directly like this, but psychology today says there's a relationship between narcissism and depression. That if you're narcissistic, you have significantly higher likelihood that you're gonna be depressed. I'm not saying if you are depressed, you're a narcissist. I'm saying there's a relationship because you and I weren't created to focus on me, me, me. And it can lead to mental health problems like it clearly did with him. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter five, it says in multiple locations, clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Pride puts you in the opposition of God. Think about that. A proud person, it's like God's on one side, a proud person on the other. That's not a fight you wanna take. We see clearly the implication of God opposing the proud in Nebuchadnezzar's life. What does it look like? He's out in the yard eating grass under the opposition of God. But there's other side effects that we see that are a part of pride. One of them, another one of them is anxiety. That pride will produce anxiety inside of your life. And here's what I mean by that. If I believe that I'm responsible for accumulating, providing, creating, I am solely responsible for making it in this life. What happens in my future is entirely dependent on me. The success of the organization I'm leading or the business you're running or your ability to get out of debt, it is entirely dependent on you. That's gonna create a lot of anxiety. And it's gonna make me think that, man, I'm in control, I need to reach for control, I need to keep things in control. And it's gonna do, wanna create, one of the side effects that pride creates, which is anxiety. That I'm consumed about fear of man, which is another way of pride. Which means I'm, I'm so worried about, what do you think about me? I can't sleep. It creates anxiety. Another side effect, and probably the most common side effect, certainly at least in my own life that I've experienced, is that pride erodes relationships, or it leads to broken relationships. It is responsible for eroding friendships, dating relationships, family relationships. Like when pride enters into the equation, it can destroy like the best of friends. Like you guys are so close, and then you know one of you hurt the other person in some way, and it just created a division, and now you're going, man, I'm not ever talking to her again. She needs to ask me for forgiveness, and now y'all don't talk anymore. It can destroy dating relationships, because in dating relationships, it looks like a thousand different ways. What do I mean by that? I mean, it looks like the person going, oh, he texted me back, it's been four hours. Okay, well, I'm not texting him back for the next two days. How about you like that? <laughs> it, you know what that is? It's immature, one, <laughs> and it's pride. 
Yeah, the one guy who's like, she still hasn't texted me back. <laughs> and it's pride. And if you are someone who's going to operate that way, man, it's going to have dysfunctional dating. And you guys may end up still getting married, and it's going to lead to dysfunctional marriage. Because marriage, I mean, Billy Graham famously said, what makes a good marriage is two forgivers that have to keep moving towards one another. And pride will keep you from doing that. It's the thing, pride is what erodes so much of the family dysfunction. I mean, you guys, you're gonna head home to Easter in like two weeks, your mom's gonna be there, there's gonna be a brunch, you're wearing pastel colors, you're gonna sit around the table and there's so much dysfunction with like your other sibling and you're like, I can't even believe that they came or they won't be there because they don't wanna talk to your mom because they're in some relationship your mom doesn't approve of and there's so much pride going on, it's why it's awkward at the family meal. Because pride. And when it's not dealt with, and when it's allowed to exist, and when it is allowed to exist in our own hearts, it's going to begin to put up barriers and division, and I can't believe you, and you should have, and all of these different things that are just expressions of pride versus a heart that's, I'm going to move towards you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to assume the best. I'm going to believe the best. I don't know your motive, and I could have been wrong, and I know that I've hurt people too, and that's gonna move you towards people. Pride pushes you away from them. And Nebuchadnezzar experiences probably the ultimate example of that, of being driven out into the wilderness. Pride, anytime it's present and allowed to continue to grow, it, it kills things, it kills relationships. Did you know that since the invention of the iPhone, 2007 or 2008, through somebody doing this right here, ready? Selfies, which I know we don't call them selfies anymore, that's so 2017, but selfies have been responsible for killing 400 people. That people have attempted to take a selfie and they'll get over a cliff or they will do it in some, <laughs> yeah, they're ready for it. <laughs> they'll do it in some dangerous environment and they'll fall into a, a, where there's a dangerous animal or just something around. In fact, there have been more people killed through death by selfie than by shark deaths in the last 10 years. In other words, you are more likely to die from taking a selfie and falling somewhere than to die this summer at the beach in the ocean by a shark. And it's an ironic and metaphorical sense because it's tragic. A month and a half ago, it happened in Phoenix of a young adult that was on the side of a mountainside trying to take a picture and tragically fell to his death. But in a weird metaphorical way, the obsession of self, not in taking a photo, but of just in life, it leads to all kinds of death. Death in dating relationships, death in relationships with your family, death in community groups. That some of you guys, man, I'm gonna just talk to Watermark members or people who are in small groups. You guys beat people over the head with little sound bites that you take from stage and you have no ability to listen and seek to understand and care for that person. You just seek to be right and seek to make sure that they know and you putting them in their place. And that's not Jesus-like. It's pride. Lastly, pride causes, and I think most tragically, especially if you're not a Christian, it has caused so many people to lose their ability to talk about Jesus or to lose their witness. It's a side effect of pride. That when my office employees, when the people I'm closest to, when the friends that I catch up with from college, when they see me and they associate me and my faith as something that makes me judgmental and proud and prideful, it makes them think, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with your faith. Because you just think you're better than everybody. And let me just, if you're not a Christian, here's what you need to know about Christians. Mature Christians, people who actually understand and are walking with Jesus and are walking in with the Spirit. We don't think we're better than anybody. We think that we're better off than we used to be because Jesus is in our life. But we don't think we're better than anyone. And anyone who does and claims to be a Christian, what you're seeing play out is pride. And it happens and it's in all of our hearts and all of our lives. But will you please forgive us because Christians who act like they are better push believers away and they lose their testimony. And pride, it makes Jesus seem unattractive because pride is one of the most unattractive things that you can be. What do I mean? When I was growing up, Michael Jordan was at the height of his like zenith. I mean, everywhere 
you win. I mean, Michael Jordan was just the greatest, I still think today, the greatest athlete, greatest basketball player of all time. I don't care what King James says. And Jordan was just crushing it. And if you weren't in the 90s growing up, I mean, he just won championship after championship. He was just a phenom. And there was a phrase called, be like Mike. Everyone wants to be like Mike. And one day, Michael Jordan had his Hall of Fame induction speech. And it was the one day where everyone said, I don't want to be like Mike anymore. It was in 2009, and he gave his speech. And after the speech, he was inducted to the Hall of Fame. A reporter from ESPN wrote about this exact idea, and he just wrote, as everyone's jaw, I remember watching it, my jaw on the floor of like, wow, that is not who I had on the poster on my wall growing up. And here's what he said. Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech was rude, vindictive, tactless, egotistical, and unbecoming. When it was done, nobody wanted to be like Mike. Here's a man who's won just about everything there is to win. Six NBA titles, five MVPs, two Olympic golds. Yet he sounded like the guy who's been screwed out of every trophy ever minted. He's the world's first sore loser. In his 23-minute speech, there were six thank yous. By comparison, David Robinson's seven-minute speech had 17. Joe Joe Montana's five-minute speech had 23. It's not that Jordan's speech wasn't from the heart. It was. It's just that Jordan's heart that night was so cold it could give you frostbite. Nobody was spared. His high school coach, high school teammates, college coach, pro coaches, college roommates, his owner, pro owner, pro general manager, even his kids, who he said about them, and how they had to follow in his footsteps. Man, I wouldn't be you guys if I had to. He, he said, even as they squirmed in their seats, he even mocked his own brothers, calling them 5'5 five five and 5'6. Five Jordan decided this was the perfect night to list all the ways everybody sitting in front of him had pissed him off for the past 30 years. Coaches and teammates going all the way back to high school. This is how Jordan really is. I just never thought he'd let the world see it. But now here he was in Springfield without a filter or a PR guy to cut him off while his staff must have been covering their eyes. And suddenly it hit you. Michael Jordan is the guy who gets up at the rehearsal dinner, grabs the mic, and ruins the night. When it was done, nobody wanted to be like Mike. And what's what's he just pointing out? He's pointing out, man, you could be the most athletic, impressive, successful person. But when you're all about you, 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 No matter what you believe, you don't have to be a Christian to go, oh, man, I don't want that. And shame on the church for any ways we have communicated me, 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 and pride. So we see the symptoms and then the side effects and then finally the solution that we see from Nebuchadnezzar's life and what happens next. This is verse 34. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High, the honored one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, his kingdom is eternal. All the people of earth are nothing compared to him. He looks up to heaven, he says God is the only God who's real, who reigns, he's the ultimate power in society and no one else compares to him at all. When my sanity returned, so did my honor and my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored as head of the kingdom with even greater honor. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and glorify the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true. And he is able to humble the proud, as I just experienced firsthand. And King Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself and says, I may be king of this empire, but you are king of all empires and all people. And compared to you, all people are like nothing And this life and this world is not about me. He shows us the solution for pride, which is humility. That he models this humility. And he looks up, and in doing so, he's restored. I mean, even that's pretty profound. You think about, like, he's out there for seven years eating flowers and grass in the yard. He comes back, and they're like, great, get a haircut, you can have your job back. It'd be hard for you to get your job back, or like I was joking with my team, if one of my team members was out in the yard eating grass tonight, And then a short amount of time later, we were like, you know what? He's back on staff. It's just a bizarre thing. Yet humility restored him. Now, I want to move quickly through humility, and then we're going to close. 
but he models what really is the solution for pride, which is humility. And I want to be as practical and clear as possible, because even humility is one of those ambiguous, vague kind of things. The Bible instructs us that you and I are to be humble towards others and towards God. Towards others and towards God. It's a mindset that is not, so as it relates towards others, as C.S. Lewis put, humility is not thinking less of yourself, like, oh man, I'm so bad, I'm horrible. It is thinking about yourself less. You're just not thinking about you. You're thinking about others around you. Philippians chapter two said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mind as Christ Jesus. That I'm gonna seek to serve. I'm focused on other people. When I'm in conversation, I wanna seek to understand before I need to seek to be understood. I wanna listen. I wanna ask good questions. I wanna know and try to hear where they're coming from, what they're asking, what they're saying. I wanna be humble and I wanna seek to serve which is the posture that you and I are to have as Christians. That it looks like humility towards other people in our life and then towards God. What does it mean to have humility towards God? First Peter chapter five, I already read it, but it says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time as it relates to humility towards God, which is what we see from Nebuchadnezzar. He realizes this is who God is, this is who I am. God, I'm gonna trust you. You are greater, you are in control. For us, that looks like I'm gonna have humility towards God as it relates to how I live my life, how I think about my job. It means I'm gonna trust your timing. God, you'll lift me up in due time. I don't have to find myself overwhelmed. I'm not far enough down the career. I'm not far enough from where I wanna be. God, I'm gonna trust you with my career. I'm gonna trust you with my dating relationship status. It means I'm gonna humble myself under your word. When you say to do something, I I could take things into my own hand and I could date like everybody else in the world does. I could live like everybody else in the world does. I could spend like everybody else in the world does. Or I could do what your word says. And I'm gonna humbly live thinking that you, infinite God, know far greater than I do how to live. I'm gonna humble myself to you, God. And Peter says, this is something you should clothe yourself with. What's he trying to say? He's saying, just like you put on a shirt every day, you should be putting on humility. It should be something that goes through your mind. Man, I need to be humble today. God, help me be humble today. It says, humble yourself. In other words, you don't have to humble other people. That's not your role. In fact, if you try to humble other people, you're not being humble. I'm responsible to humble me. I have a friend that says, when I think through my day, I I think of it like, man, I need to put on humility. And I begin to think through all the meetings that I have that day, all the different interactions, different opportunities, presentations, and I begin to go, God, I know I'm gonna walk into that room and I'm gonna be tempted to be defensive. I'm gonna be tempted to be combative. I'm gonna be tempted to be resentful. And so will you help me to just put on humility and trust you that I'm gonna put it on every day. And unlike pride, which looks ugly on everyone, humility looks good on everyone. Like, man, guys, if you... Maybe you came into the room tonight and you, this is just for free. You want to look better tonight, okay? You will be more attractive, like maybe you, like me, you have a face only a mama could love or a face made for radio. You want to be more attractive tonight. Some of you guys just got that. (laughs) If you walk in humility, it's one of the most attractive things that people can see to all people. And God says, you and I are to put on daily humility. So here's the closing application for believers. I want tomorrow, when you wake up and you're gonna be tempted in all of the different rush of pride towards you, and you're gonna be in that conversation, and you're gonna be tempted to go, no, they don't ever celebrate me, I'm not celebrating them. They don't ever call me, I'm not calling them. They don't ever say nice things or do anything for me. I'm not doing anything for them. And I want you to decide, nope, pride, you are not controlling my life today. I'm not giving you the keys to my life and letting you drive. I'm getting myself in the driver's seat and I'm gonna move towards them no matter what they've done or haven't done for me. 
When I'm tempted to say, you know what, I'm just gonna hold it against them, I'm not forgiving, I don't want them. I'm gonna decide, I'm gonna forgive them. Like Christ forgave me. Which at the end of that passage, he gives us really, I mean, that's the point. It's, you're following Jesus. Solution and humility, putting it on, is following Jesus' example. Where the verses after it says, have the mind of Christ in your relationships. Who, Paul was writing this to the church in Philippi. You remember Jesus. He was in form of God. And yet he didn't consider equality with God something that had grasped to his advantage. He made himself nothing. He was made in human likeness and being made into a man, he humbled himself to becoming obedient even to death on a cross. Do you remember Jesus? He showed up and he entered the world and God became a man. And then he went to death on a cross to die on a piece of wood that he created, that he sustained and held together, Colossians 1, for you having never sinned or done anything wrong, and he gave his life for you and for me. And Paul says, you follow the example of your Savior, of God. You walk in humility. You serve when they don't deserve. You move towards people. And you look like Jesus. And because Jesus did that, God exalted him and gave him the name above every other name that at the name of Jesus one day every knee will bow in heaven and earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Some of you, you came into the room tonight and like I started, I said pride will keep you from a relationship with God for eternity. The application for you is different because you've never had a moment where you humbled yourself and received Jesus as your savior. And you've never thought of it like pride before, but here's what I mean. Today, I was preparing for this message and I drove to a Starbucks and I was getting out of my car and I opened my passenger side or my driver's side door and as I did, a car just came in hot and <laughs> bent my door forward. And it was one of those like, wow, did not see that coming and got out of the car and the door wouldn't shut and it wouldn't fully open. And it was like, okay, I guess I'm talking to Geico and not reading my Bible for the next 30 minutes. And what happened there is the car got damaged and somebody's gonna pay for that. I mean, literally. Like either she's going to in her insurance or I'm going to. Because there's damage and in order for it to be made right, somebody has to pay for it. We can wish it away or you know, regret that it happened, but for it to be made right, somebody has to pay for it. And the Bible says that you and I through our actions and our sin, we've created a debt. We have sinned against God and sinned against people and all of that has created a debt and somebody has to pay for it. And God, 2,000 years ago, came into the world because he knew no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, and some of you have never heard this before, you think God wants you to go to church, pay your taxes, be a nice person, stop you know, sleeping around and then you can have a relationship with God and you'll go to heaven. And you've bought a lie. And that lie is rooted in pride because you think if you're good enough, you'll be able to reach God. And the Bible says God is so majestic. He is so above. He's so other holy and above anything that we've ever known that nothing you could ever do or I could ever do would ever allow you to have a relationship with him. And because of that, God sent his son, driven by love, clothed in humility, to die on a cross for you. And what you have to do is get over yourself and say, I'll never earn that relationship, but I don't have to, God, because I accept you as my Lord and Savior. But what will keep you from that is pride. Others of you, you have another flavor of pride that's keeping you and holding you back. Here's what I mean. You look in the mirror and you think, man, if there's a God, I know what I've done. I know who I've slept with. I know the places I've been. I know the abortions I've had or that are part of my story. I know the drugs that I've done. I know the ways that I've hurt people, abused people, the things that I've done. And if he's there, he has no reason or has nothing that he wants to do with me. And you've bought a lie too. They're just two flavors of the same coin. That your sin is stronger than the Savior and Son of God. It's pride. And God tonight is inviting you, hey, no matter what you have done, no matter the story you have, I showed up 2,000 years ago for you and gave my life on the cross for you. But for you to have eternal life and experience the abundant life, you have to say, 
I am not enough, which takes humility. And I accept you as my savior. You paid on the cross, you died and you rose, and it is paid for. And I don't deserve it, but you're a God who serves people who don't deserve it. And that takes humility. Let me pray. Father, I pray for anyone tonight who has bought the lie that is most commonly believed by so many in our world, that their behavior determines their relationship status with you, that you would break down barriers and you would allow them to come to the end of themselves and in humility, look up like Nebuchadnezzar did to the heavens and say, the most high is Lord over all. I worship him. I accept him as my Lord and as my savior. And I'll spend eternity with him despite my sin because he paid for it. I pray that you would clothe your children and your church in humility. And would you start with me, God? I know there are areas I need you that I can't even see to burst through and make me more humble. Not in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of you. And would you help us all to be more humble or said otherwise, to be more like you, like Jesus. We worship you now in song, amen.